What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, the book of Acts, chapter 26. We're taking a break from our expository series in 1 Thessalonians this morning to consider some important items related to the resurrection. So let's look at Acts chapter 26, and we're going to read together verses 19 through 29. When you find that in your Bible, let's go ahead and stand up together for the reading of God's Word as we recognize its infallibility, its inspiration, its authority, its inerrancy for us, the words of the true and the living God. Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to 29. Listen now to the Word of your God. Therefore, Paul speaking here, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so here I stand testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul... You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. You may be seated. The word almost is probably one of the most tragic words that there is in the English language. The word almost tells us the difference between what could have been and what actually is. The word almost is the dividing line between potentiality and and actuality. It's the difference perhaps between one's imagination and, and what is actual real 
concrete reality. Sometimes our lives fall apart based on the word almost. It's one of the most disappointing words. It's one of the words that tends to snuff out our our hope and steal our joy. The word almost, it's a tragic word. Uh, Let's take sports, for instance. I'm I'm a Cleveland fan, so you can... You can relate to me a little bit. Almost has crushed our hearts as Cleveland sports fans. The Browns almost made it to the Super Bowl twice. And then there was the drive. John Elway, I'll never forget him. The Broncos, ugh. And then there was the fumble, Ernest Biner, you may remember that. And the Cleveland Indians, we almost won the World Series twice in 97 and 2016. We made it to the seventh game. Extra innings in 2016 against the Cubs. Almost. That little word almost will crush your hopes and it'll, it'll steal your dreams if you're not careful. How many people have ruined their lives with the word almost? How many dreams didn't come true because of the word almost? Let's think of romance. Somebody may say, I almost married her. I almost proposed. I almost asked her out. Well, why didn't you? You coward, do it. Don't miss the opportunities in life. Almost. Almost is the word that has changed probably all of our lives. At some point, there was a moment where we almost got in a car crash, or we almost died, or we almost got the job, or we almost got into law school. Whatever it is, almost is that very thin razor's edge between what could be and what actually is. This morning, I want to consider uh, some words from Scripture, one of the more important occasions of the word almost is in our text today. You probably didn't notice it if you were reading from the the ESV, the text that I just read to you, but I want to pull out this morning, just for the sake of argument here, the old, beautiful, trustworthy, reliable King James Version of 1611. I want you to listen to the word almost in this text. It comes at a very poignant moment And the story, I'm going to pick it up in verse 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But Paul said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth that I speak these things before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know thou believest. And then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. The King James Version says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. If you have the New King James Version in your hand, you've got the same thing. But if you're a diligent reader, you probably notice that the English Standard Version, which we read, says something a little bit different. It says, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Question mark. There's not a lot of difference in the Greek between almost and this rendering of in a short time. It really comes down to punctuation, whether this is a, a question or a statement on the part of King Agrippa. It's not entirely clear, though, because as you may know, the ancient Greek versions don't have any punctuation. So I'm just going to go ahead with what the King James says here. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, you may be wondering why I selected this text on Easter Sunday. After all, you're you're used to hearing the Gospels preached. You're used to the last chapters of Matthew or Luke or John, maybe even 1 Corinthians 15. You might not have heard a sermon on Easter Sunday from Acts chapter 26 
before in your life. But nevertheless, there's something happening here in this text that I think is going to be clear as we go why I selected it for this Resurrection Sunday. But let's, let's back up a second and let me give you a little bit of the historical context about what's happening here and why this almost from King Agrippa is such a poignant and turning moment in his soul's destiny. Um, let's think about this. So Paul has been arrested in Acts chapter 21. So I'd like for you to have your Bible out because this sermon is going to make a lot more sense if you're following along with me. We'll only be in the book of Acts today, so it's not going to be hard to follow along. In Acts chapter 21, Paul has been arrested in the temple for uh, false charges against him. Uh, he's going to then experience a series of trials before various levels of courts. You may think of this more contemporaneously as being arrested and then going to jail and then having a hearing or an arraignment and then formal charges in the courtrooms and then maybe an appeal and then maybe another appeal. And so Paul is, for seven chapters, going to be working his way through the legal process for these charges that are laid against him. So he's arrested in chapter 21, and then he has a hearing before the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 23, and then he's going to be transferred for his own security's sake. He's going to be transferred from Jerusalem to a city about 60 miles away, some northwest of Jerusalem on the coast, to a city of Caesarea, where he's then going to experience hearings before Felix, first of all, who's the regional governor of Caesarea. And then when Felix is replaced by Festus, he's going to have a hearing before him. And then King Agrippa, who is the puppet king of, of the Jews, but all, of course, functioning under the, the, the supreme authority of the emperor of, of Rome, Nero, the Caesar. Uh, but nevertheless, a very significant series of trials for Paul in these several chapters. But the reason that I've chosen this text for us today on Resurrection Sunday is simply this. That every time Paul has the occasion to speak to the court, he testifies to one central grounding fact and reality. Every time Paul opens his mouth to testify and to give his apologia, his rational defense of his actions, he points to one event, the resurrection. And so what I'd like to do this morning is we're going to work back through Paul's statements before his various court hearings, and we're going to look at how the resurrection becomes so central to what Paul says and how he defends himself here. And then finally, towards the end, we're going to come back to that word almost for just a moment as we close. So I hope you have your Bible out with me. Let's, let's do this together. Let's look at at least five or so times where Paul speaks about the resurrection in his trials. Let's go back all the way to chapter 23 and look at his trial before the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish ruling council. This would be the same council that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was tried before as part of his own legal proceedings before the case was kicked over to Pontius Pilate. Paul is now standing before the same court of Jewish scribes and lawyers and experts in the laws. And Paul speaks here in 23.6. It says this, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Pause right there. You see, the Sanhedrin was, was, was much like our own political scene today. There's two major parties. 
Two major parties that could hardly agree on anything. In fact, uh, conveniently enough, they broke down to what we might call a liberal or progressive party and a more conservative party. Now, the liberal progressive party was called the Sadducees, and the more conservative party was the Pharisees. And Paul here openly acknowledged that he was one of the Pharisees. If I lived in that day, I'd probably be a Pharisee too, because I tend to be quite conservative in my beliefs and my worldview. And yet Paul takes a moment here recognizing the polarity between these two parties within the Sanhedrin, and he says something of crucial importance. He says this, if you want to boil it down to why I'm on trial, Like, if you want to really break down what this whole trial is about, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, and immediately what happens in the Sanhedrin is that chaos begins to break out. Because as Luke, the author of Acts, explains in verse 8, look at verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all, and then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. So chaos begins to ensue. And it's because of Paul's central claim about the resurrection that the room is literally split in half, let's say. The resurrection has been, is, and will always continue to be that central claim of Christianity which divides the room, so to speak. It divides the room between the two great worldviews. Now, I've argued before uh, from this pulpit, in fact, that there are really four main worldviews that everybody probably falls into. The first and the two most important of which are the supernaturalist worldview. There are some of us here who believe in God. We believe he raises the dead. We believe in angels. We believe in demons. We believe essentially in the same fundamental framework that the Pharisees believed in. And then opposing that, you have essentially the materialist worldview or the anti-supernaturalist worldview that says that none of those things are real. Now, the other, the other two worldviews are essentially inconsistent versions of, of the first two where you say one thing, but you act in the other way. But I want you to recognize this main point here. When Paul says that I am one who believes in the resurrection of Christ, that is going to be the kind of claim that always splits the room. It's going to be that central claim that differentiates those who hold a supernaturalist view and those who hold a materialist view. Because either it's true or it's false, right? That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on a particular day in history. AD 33, from a particular city that, by the way, is still there today, from a particular tomb that, by the way, is still empty. Either he was raised from the dead or he wasn't. You make that claim, you split the room every time. But notice here, and please notice the context here, that when Paul publicly states, as he always does, his conviction that Christ is raised from the dead, it will always come to him with consequences. It will always come to him with serious consequences. In fact, Paul is going to spill his own blood multiple times as he is routinely beaten or stoned on this occasion or that. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, you don't have to right now, but Paul begins preaching the gospel. It stirs up such a fuss that at least at one point they have to lower him down over the walls of the city from a basket just so he survives. 
And here in context, I want you to notice immediately what happens, immediately after Paul makes the statement, look down at, at verses 12 and following, there is a plot to kill him. And you say, well, why did they take it so serious? Well, the reason they took it so serious is because they know the repercussions of the claim. Paul is claiming not only that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but all of us are going to be raised from the dead one day and judged. And so this is such a serious division that breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the midst of the Sanhedrin that some of them literally swear a swear. They make a vow that they're not even going to eat or drink until they kill him in cold blood. They're ready to make a martyr of Paul. And there are, there are places on planet Earth today that you need to be aware of that if you stand up in, in the, the midst of, of the public square on a soapbox and you proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and raised again, they'll want to kill you too. And some of those places are pretty far away and others are getting closer. Now the next time Paul mentions the resurrection in such an important moment, let's flip over uh, a chapter or so. Let's go to chapter 24. You see, what happens is that it becomes so dangerous that the Roman tribune, a man by the name of Claudius Lysias, um, he actually transfers Paul to a different city for, his, for the sake of his own security. Transfers him to Caesarea. And Paul then comes under, underneath the, uh, the authority of Felix, who is the governor of Caesarea. This is a this is a secular Roman pagan man here. Felix is the governor of, of Caesarea. Although he is married to a Jewish woman, look at 2424. It says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Paul and Felix actually have quite an interesting relationship. We can't dig into it uh, here as much as I'd like to this morning, but Felix seems to be quite sincerely curiosified by Paul and his claims. Felix seems to want to hear from Paul somewhat regularly. Look at verse 26. Uh, at the same time, he hoped that, he, uh, that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. They seem to have this interesting dialogue. But I want you to notice this claim here in verse 14. This is another important resurrection declaration by Paul. Uh, 24, 14, But this I confess to you that according to the way, mark that, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The way, it's called. What is he referring to with the way? Well, that was probably the earliest label for Christianity before it became known as Christianity, they called it back in those days, the way. It was a label. They didn't have quite the right category to put this in yet. What are these Christians? How do they fit in? Now, we know what the Roman panoply of gods looks like. We know that the Jews are monotheists who worship a Jehovah God or Yahweh God, the God of the Old Testament. But who are these Christians? Are they a sect? Are they a cult? Are they an offshoot? Is this the fulfillment of? And so for lack of any other classifying label at that time they simply called christianity the way question where did they get that probably the source text would be john 14 6 
where Jesus Christ says, I am the way in the truth in the life. And by the way, definitive article there, right? The way, the truth, the life. And so when Jesus says these things about himself, he is not making a claim of inclusivity. He is making a claim of exclusivity. Because Jesus says to be the way in contradistinction to all other possible ways. It's a very serious claim. Uh, Is Christianity a a religion of inclusivity or or of exclusivity? Well, I I suppose it depends on what you mean by that. Because we could say, on one hand, that we are the most inclusive religion in the world. How so? Because Christ can save men, and he can save women. He can save the old, and he can save the young. And he can save the rich, and he can save the poor. And he can save the diseased, and he can save the healthy. And he can save people out of every wicked lifestyle that he chooses to by his grace. Uh, He can save people of every single skin color all over the map. He can do all of these things, saving anybody he will. So in one sense, we might say Christianity is legitimately the most inclusive movement the world has ever seen. Believe that. It's true. And yet on the other hand, we can also say that Christianity is extraordinarily exclusive because the claims of Jesus Christ is that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so notice here that Paul pins his hope on the way. And when you start talking like that, when you start talking about the idea that there's only one way to be saved, well, that gets a little bit offensive to some people, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So you say, well, okay, so Christ is the way. Well, what about the atheists? No, we just said he's the only way. What about polytheists? What about emperor worshipers? What about henotheists? Henotheists are those who say that there's territorial gods, different gods over different regions. What about the other monotheists, the ones that reject Christ? And the answer again is no, no, and no. Jesus says that he is the way, singular, definitive article. You say, well, there's got to be a way you can prove that, right? I mean, you can't just go around making claims that you have to believe in this one particular person in order to be saved. There has to be some way that that's either falsifiable or verifiable. Well, which is it? And we say there is a way to verify this claim. The way that we verify this claim is by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either it happened or it didn't. If it didn't happen, this is all false. We're wasting our time here. If it did happen, If Jesus Christ is raised from the grave, literally from a state of death, if he is raised, then he is the way, and Paul is right. And so you see how these poignant moments of the resurrection keep happening in his trials. Now let's look to the next one here. This one is actually going to be from the mouth of an unbeliever, from Festus. Now, in case you're wondering what happened between Felix and Festus, well, Felix was replaced for incompetency by the Roman hierarchy, and he's replaced with another governor called Festus. So keep in mind here that Felix and Festus, they have the same title, they have the same job. It's just one succeeded the other. But in this next layer of the trial here, uh, the Jewish king, this puppet king, uh, Herod Agrippa, and his wife Bernice, by the way, very scandalous, don't have time to go into that this morning, but there's a scandal there, 
Agrippa and Bernice come from Jerusalem to join Festus in this next layer of the trial here. And so Festus, who has been having Paul in his custody for some time, he's going to try to catch Bernice and Herod Agrippa up on what's happening here. And interesting, look at verse 19 of chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 19. Festus speaking here. Rather, he explains, they had certain points of disputes with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so as Festus is catching up Agrippa and Bernice on what's been happening in the trial, he's trying to summarize it himself. And he says, um, yeah, let's see, this, okay, this Paul guy, he was, he was at odds with, with the other Jews. And I know there were some certain points of religion. It's all very complicated. Uh, he said something about Isaiah, and they said something about Isaiah's prophecies. And, but, but I know this. He, he recognizes this, that Paul was making a certain claim about Jesus who is dead, but Paul asserts and maintains to be alive. And so the resurrection is even this clarifying moment for the unbeliever here. He gets it. He knows the issue. Okay? He may not be able to articulate what all these other quote, certain points of dispute were, unquote, but he knows the central defining item. Now Paul begins to give his defense in verse, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 26. They allow him to speak. This is an apologia. That's the Greek word for a reasonable self-defense. Sometimes we talk about uh, the, the work of apologetics, which is to defend the Christian faith historically and and doctrinally and otherwise, and Paul begins to give his, his apologia here. They do at least give him the opportunity to speak. So this trial is, I suppose, in some sense fair, although they still haven't really articulated any exact charges against him. But Paul says here in chapter 26, verse 8, look at this. Here's a question. Paul is actually beginning to build some momentum here, and he asks this 26.8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Good question. Is that so impossible? That God could raise the dead? I guess it depends on what kind of a God do you believe in. Well, let's do a little quiz, shall we? Uh, is God the Lord of the heavens or the earth or the seas? Which is it? It's all of the above. Is God the Lord of the past, of the present, or of the future? Which is it? It's all of the above. Is God the Lord of the angels or the demons or the men? Which is it? It's all of the above. Is God the Lord of the living or the dead or those who are yet to be born? Which is it? It's all of the above. And so if you're, if you're talking about a real God, a true, supernatural, uh, sovereign, glorious, all-providential God, then Paul asks this question, then what is so ridiculous about saying that he raised his son? There could be nothing ridiculous about that then. And so then we come to the most interesting moment in the trial, at least as far as I'm concerned, Paul's closing statement. Let's jump ahead to chapter 26. And let's dig into verses 22 and 23. So Paul has had the opportunity to share his faith. He even gives his own personal testimony here. He tells about how this Christ has appeared to him in 26 verses 12 through 18. And then 
as the tension in the trial really begins to pick up, Paul does something that is extraordinarily bold here. Look at this. Let's look at verse 22. To this day, he says, I've had the help that comes from God, and so here I stand testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said must come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, of all of the great courtroom moments that have taken place throughout history and and also, let's say, film, this is one of the best. This is Paul's matlock moment here in the courtroom. This, this, is, this is Paul's um, a few good men moment. Remember Tom Cruise and Jack, was it Jack Nicholas? Is that what it was? Nicholson or Nicholas? I always get them confused. One was a golfer. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Remember that moment? Great moment. And this is Paul's here I stand moment. 1,500 years before Martin Luther said, here I stand at the Diet of Worms. Paul said it first. Here I stand. And what is he going to stand on? Paul says, I take my stand. I bet my life. I bet my blood on this. I bet not only my physical life, but I bet my eternity on this. That Christ, according to the prophets, must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And at this point, uh, Festus actually shouts out to him. Paul, he actually interrupts him. Paul, you're crazy. You're mad. You're, you're so learned. You're actually driving yourself insane. And then what does Paul do? This is so great. I love this part. Paul, utterly in control of the moment, actually becomes the prosecuting attorney. And this incredible switch as the, the script is flipped and the plot is turned, Paul actually points to the king himself. And he puts, he puts King Agrippa on trial for a moment. He says, what about you, Agrippa? Where you stand on these items? What's your apologia, King Agrippa? You believe the prophets? And then Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Nice try, Paul. You almost had me with that. My grandpa used to have a saying, you've probably heard it, that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You ever hear that? Play horseshoes, get it on, that's a ringer, that's three. You get a leaner, that's two. Get it close enough, still get a point. Hand grenades, too. Because if you're playing darts and you miss by three feet, man, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad miss. But if you're playing with grenades and you come within three feet, you got them. There are certain things in life where close is, is good enough but not with eternity. There is no almost a Christian. You either are or you aren't. There is no almost a Christian. And the reason I need to point that out this morning is that I'm I'm a little bit afraid, I'm a little bit nervous that some of you actually think that you are almost a Christian. So what would that even be, theoretically? 
Well, an almost a Christian shows up on Easter Sunday, of course. You've got to show up twice a year, right? Easter and Christmas Eve. And you've got to wear your Easter best to resurrection morning service. You'd do that, of course. And if you were a good almost a Christian, you'd put your cute little girls in new dresses too, right? You'd all dress up, ready for pictures. And you've got your Easter flowers ordered, and you've got your ham cooking in the oven at home. And you come from a Christian family. Now, your dad was a Christian, and your grandpa was a Christian, and you sort of assume that because they were, you are too. And you know your Bible, at least a little bit of it. Probably even went to CRP here a couple of years ago, right? But there is a huge chasm as far as the east is from the west. There is a difference between the heights of heaven and the depths of hell. Between a Christian and an almost a Christian. Because the almost a Christian doesn't exist. You either are or you aren't. So what's the difference? Well, go back to Paul's question. Believest thou the prophets? You believe these things? I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care what you're having for lunch. The question is, do you believe the central claim of all of history, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? Some of us, many of us here, this day, this is our joy. And and like Paul, uh, we are ready to stand trial for this. We are ready to bleed for this. We are ready to be stoned for this. We are ready to be lowered over the wall in a basket for this claim. Because if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and that's truly true, then all of our sin is forgiven in his name. And that's why we sing. And that's why we rejoice. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.